Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Tech and e-commerce companies have a reputation for being drivers of creative destruction as reliable jobs are eliminated, sometimes at great cost to local communities. Economic nostalgia tells us to lament those jobs and fear the changes that come with technological progress. But it's worth remembering that tech companies are also a major source of job growth in the U.S. economy. On this episode of Faster Please, the podcast, I'm joined by Michael Mandel to consider the role of America's tech companies in the American economy. Michael is vice president and chief economist at the Progressive Policy Institute. He's also the author of Investment Heroes 2022, Fighting Inflation with Capital Investment, co-authored with Jordan Shapiro. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Jim, glad to be here. Last year, you said, we've seen in recent years that the tech, broadband, e-commerce sector has been the main source of job growth in the economy. Do you think this is a widely understood fact, either among the public or among policymakers here in Washington? That's such an excellent question. No, it's not a widely understood fact. That I mean, I've just calculated the, 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 the latest numbers, and if you sort of look at full-time equivalents, all of the job growth since the, uh, since the pandemic started has been in the tech, what I call now the, the tech e-commerce sector. Um, and uh, the, the rest of the economy has just been growing, and job growth has been much, much weaker. Is this, uh, is this purely a sort of pandemic-era phenomenon, or is something you expect has it been happening? Do you expect it to continue to happen? It's, it was happening before the pandemic. It continues after It's going to continue after the pandemic, too. I think what we've learned in the past is that whichever sectors grow during a recession tend to lead the next recovery as well. So the fact that we've had all this growth in the tech, broadband, e-commerce sector during the pandemic suggests that that's going to be the job leader going forward as well. The BLS has just uh, released its uh, occupational projections for the next 10 years. I haven't had a chance to look through them yet. I suspect that they will understate the, the future impact, job impact of, of, of the tech broadband e-commerce sector uh, as they have in the past. Is that an accurate forecast that they put out? It is about um, as accurate as just extending long-term trends. Right. In terms of looking forward, in terms of, say, telecom-related jobs or app economy jobs or computer-related jobs, it just has consistently under-forecast, under-projected. They actually make no real claims. They don't say it's a <laughs> forecast. They say it's a projection. And, and, and really, probably if you ask them privately, they would tell you they really don't want to do it. But it's really widely read. Uh, the part of that sector I think people might be surprised at was the e-commerce. I, I'm guessing that a lot of people view e-commerce as sort of a jobs killer, that, uh, that it's replacing all the people who work in, you know, in-person stores, uh, people being replaced by kiosks. And uh, is that your perception? Uh, and that is wrong, though. That is my perception, and that is wrong. <laughs> Because what's happened, it, the way that I think about e-commerce is it doesn't pull jobs out of brick-and-mortar retail. It actually pulls hours out of the household sector. 
so that the, what happened is that people used to put an enormous amount of hours into driving to stores, parking, walking around, standing online, and so forth. And if you look at the data that comes out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics on the American Time News Survey, you see a, a really sharp drop in the number of hours that people spend shopping for goods. It's gone down by about 20% over the last 15, 15 years. And it's it dropped about 10% just over the course of the pandemic. And this is, so all of these hours, which are an enormous number of household, unpaid household hours, is being moved into the, into the um, paid market sector. So instead of you going into a store and picking out the stuff yourself, somebody else is doing this using robots in an e-commerce fulfillment center. And instead of you driving to the store by yourself and spending all that time parking, somebody else is putting the stuff in a big truck and delivering it to you, using more capital, doing it more efficiently. And so that there's been a very sharp drop in the number of hours that, um, that households are spending on shopping, which A, creates a lot of jobs in the market sector, B, really distorts the productivity numbers, and C, actually leads us to misunderstand the sources of growth in the economy, what the effects of productivity is, what the effects of technology is. We, for many years, and I know you and I have talked about this in the past, for many years, we used to wonder, when was technology going to start generating jobs for the ordinary person? And that's what e-commerce has done, generate tech-enabled jobs in e-commerce fulfillment centers, in the entire supply chain that pay better than the old retailing jobs, that pay actually a lot better than the non-paid jobs in the market, in the, in the household sector right. where people used to spend this. And so you're creating a lot of income that wasn't in the economy before. I guess, well, I think people, one, they don't think about those sorts of warehouse fulfillment center jobs. If they do, they probably think they pay worse than what they actually do. And third, they probably underestimate how many there are and figure it's just all robots or something. Well, that I think we've, we've managed to sort of break the all robot uh, canard. Okay, because what we've seen here is that the ability to put robots into the fulfillment centers has lowered the cost of doing e-commerce so much that it's actually made it open to all consumers for everything, basically. There's no restrictions on it. You're able to, you're producing enough surplus that you can actually do returns correctly. And so there's a big economic surplus being generated by, by the automation of the fulfillment centers that enables us to hire a lot more workers. Right. And that's kind of a classic case of technology affecting the labor market, right? That this is, if you look back historically, this is very much the same sort of thing that happened with uh, the, um, the Henry, Henry Ford and, and the assembly line, which is that you think you have an assembly line, you, you added productivity that's going to reduce the number of uh, jobs. But what happens is it lo lowered the cost of cars so much that all of a sudden people were able to buy, the ordinary person was able to buy them. That created a lot more demand for workers. And if you think about why were people, why were people buying cars as opposed to just using horses, it's a time thing. It's really the, th the thing that's in most scarcity for the for individuals, for households, is time because they can't create more of it. So anything that saves people time, they're going to be willing to pay a lot for. So in that one case, this was the this was the automobile creating jobs. In this case, it's it's um, less shopping time creating jobs in e-commerce fulfillment and delivery. 
I think uh, if you've if you've never been in one of those fulfillment centers, I think for most people, maybe their best experience. There was a wonderful movie, the name I can't think of, but it starred Frances McDormand, the actress, where she, where she would work uh, during the busy season at a uh, at an Amazon fulfillment center, and. Uh, it did not seem like a miserable job. I think somehow there's the, but it seemed like a, a busy job. It's a, bu- <laughs> it's a, bu- it's a busy job. Right. Okay. I think about these as the equivalent of manufacturing jobs for the, for the, for the technological age. Right. They are mixed physical cognitive jobs, just the way that assembly line jobs were mixed. They actually required some skill at the same time. They required manual labor. They pay about the same as entry level manufacturing jobs. In many areas of the of the country, they are, in fact, become the substitute entry level job that manufacturing once was, and so I th- and if you look at the if you look at the data for occupational health, they're they're kind of where they should be, right? They're physical jobs. You can't deny that. Right. But they uh, which is actually kind of gives a lot of people problems because they think, well, what is an ideal job? Is an ideal job an office job? Well, it turns out for a lot of people it's not. It's something that involves some measure of physical labor too. Right. But let me actually give you, let me actually sort of give you a, a, a number here. Since, uh, since July um, uh, 2019, the, um, uh, the tech broadband and commerce sector has produced about 1.3 million jobs out of a total of 2.2 million for the economy as a whole. And that's pretty amazing. That's more than a majority and much more than healthcare and social assistance is, which is actually should be actually your next question, which is what's going to happen to healthcare jobs? Okay. With, what is going to happen with, with, with automation? <laughs> because I think what I think this, that's an area that if you think about the, the shift to telehealth in the, during the pandemic, people are realizing that there's less expensive ways of doing what they were doing before better ways of communication. And it, what we're going to see is one of the biggest phenomenon I think we're going to see going forwards is that the long healthcare job boom may be over. So we may actually end up with a surplus of healthcare workers that will actually, and it's, these people will have to, rather than retraining manufacturing workers to go into healthcare, we may be retraining healthcare workers to go into technology. On that, on that issue, uh, I know there's been some research, I think, by Darren Asimolu about what, what, how is technology affecting the modern job market? Is it, is it, are we producing the kind of innovation and automation that replaces jobs? Are we producing the kind that uh, uh, creates new things for people to do? Are we creating the kind that that helps people do their jobs better? And I think there's some concern that we've produced too much of the job replacing rather than the job creating slash enabling. And what you've just described is seems to be job replacing. Well, so so we're going to have we're going to we're going to have both types. We we haven't actually had any of the job replacing yet. Okay, at least at least not in the, the measure that people were worried about. Remember, we were worried about all all the losses of jobs for truck drivers from yes. autonomous trucks, and right. instead we have shortages of truck drivers right now. I was told there'd be riots. Okay, and so if you look back if you look back historically, you see that some technologies generate jobs and some technologies replace jobs. And I think what we've seen, which we hadn't seen before in the e-commerce sphere is we know what, this is a case where we've created new jobs. And if you actually add together e-commerce jobs 
and the brick and mortar retail jobs, what you see is that there has been a 650,000 job increase since the beginning of the pandemic in the combined retail e-commerce sector. So there's a net job increase from, from, um, uh, from technology here. And there's a net wage increase because the e-commerce jobs pay about 30% more than brick and mortar retail. And they are more diverse, which is really interesting. Diverse, diverse racially, mm-hmm. okay, and diverse, uh, diverse ethnically, okay, because the, you know, this is the, you know, people usually sort of think of retailing being a um, being weighted to sort of, you know, poor people of color, but in fact, you look and you sort of see that there's a lot of discrimination in in, in brick and mortar retail, and so, I think in the end, the retail, the retail sector broadly extended, including e-commerce. It's going to be a net job gainer from technology. The real interesting question is going to be what's happened to manufacturing. And we're, I'm watching this very closely, which is that, it, of course, we've lost a lot of manufacturing jobs. We've lost a lot of manufacturing jobs. Still make a lot of things, though. We make a lot of things, but the, the, the capacity, the non-high-tech capacity, manufacturing capacity, peaked in 2000 has been coming down since mm-hmm. then. So the... So the, the, the actual size, however you want to measure the manufacturing sector in the U.S., has actually been shrinking. What we need to be able to do is we need to be able to sort of adopt more advanced manufacturing techniques, more automation, more digitization, sort of drive down the cost of making goods, drive it down in a way that starts increasing the ability of people to buy them, increasing the capacity, and increasing the jobs associated with them. So this kind of goes to your question about is it job replacing or job creating, right? And so what happened was is that people got scared. Okay, we, we, you know, we, we, we've been replacing jobs with, with technology up to now. But there's nothing that says that it has to manufacturing jobs with technology up to now. But nothing that says that that has to keep going that way. And I actually think that's kind of a very, really kind of crucial question for the U.S. economy going forward is are we going to actually invest in manufacturing digitization, not just on large scale, but in, on small scale as well, and on to entrepreneurs. And one of the things that I watch really closely is this new census data on business formations. And you don't see the, jo- the, the business formation growth. You see a lot of business formation growth across the economy, but not in manufacturing yet. That's going to be actually a crucial turning point for the economy. So how do we make that happen, that will have manufacturing here in the U.S. using the latest technology, robotics, what have you? Well, one of the things we have to realize is that is that our small businesses are still cash poor mm-hmm. and credit poor. We have to sort of focus the ability. And they also don't have re- access to the latest technology. And so we have to think of, the way that I think about this is if you go think about, go back to the auto industry and say auto auto franchises, right. right? Which created a lot of wealth on the local level, auto dealer franchises. We have to think about manufacturing franchises on the local level, where the where the technology is prepackaged, where people start small businesses and do a lot of creation and production on the local level in a lot of different places, and it, there are maybe some signs that it could be happening, maybe some signs that it isn't. But 
uh, this is one of the, the that would be one of the big turning points for the U.S. economy um, in terms of moving towards a really strong, sustainable future. So you're you're not just talking about big companies with big factories. You're talking about far smaller companies able to use the latest technology, an off-the-shelf robot or something who can who can do things. So is the, is the technology almost there? Is there a role for government? It's just we just need the technology to keep progressing. What's the key? We need there? the technology to keep progressing, but it's almost there. The real question is, is financing for the sm- for small entrepreneurs and exposure to the technology. They're just unaware that this. They're is just out un- there. they're just unaware. They have to be able to they have to be able to sort of experiment with it. And right now, they're the small manufacturers are scared. They what they. But they tell me what kind of what, who's a small like what do small manufacturers manufacture? This so you can imagine there's far more small job shops out there than you might think, and a potential for for, for far more than you might think mm-hmm. to sort of grow up. You know, for example, suppose you had an old appliance that was missing a part. In theory, there's no trouble. There's no problem f- producing that part let's say 3D manufacturing or some other technology, if you had the plans for it right. and if you had that, that set up. So what you, what you have right now is you do have manufacturing networks that actually, so you could actually contact a, a manufacturing network company and give them your plan and they would find a job shop around the country that could do that. You could set up a manufacturing operation tomorrow. A lot of this is not, a lot of this is not difficult. There's some areas that are more difficult. It's still difficult. The, 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 the art of automating a lot of apparel manufacturer is still not mm-hmm. all there. I mean, it's getting there too. So you've got, a, you've got apparel manufacturing. You've got you know, small, small tools, small objects. You've got, you should be able to have the ability to sort of make customized furniture much cheaper than you do. You go through the different lists of things. I mean, it becomes harder the more complicated that things get. Mm-hmm. But things that are really sort of simple should be able to be manufactured with these new technologies in ways that are um, less costly and more customized. Um, every year, you folks at PPI put out a um, a investment heroes report uh, showing all the investment that you have. You know, who are the companies really investing? A lot of very well known tech companies, not just tech companies, not just tech companies uh, on that. Uh, on that list, but there are uh, a lot of tech companies. So if technology companies are creating a lot of jobs, if they're investing a lot, um, why do they seem to be so wildly unpopular here in Washington? So let's actually sort of say some of the more good things they do as well. They also don't charge. They also pay their workers well. They did not participate in the inflationary surge. The, the digital, the inflation in the digital sector was, Accelerated a little bit, but much less than the rest of the economy, which is what you would expect if you had high productivity growth. Uh, and so I think that when when you when push comes to shove, people just don't like big. Big worries them. Mm-hmm. If you go back, if you look historically, what you see is, I mean, these companies, I mean, I should say you compare these companies to the big manufacturing companies in the past, and they're... You know, if you if you compare them size wise to the global economy, they're about the same size, relatively speaking. Okay, so they're not out of scale. But what happens is that there's a regulatory push, 
and that's only natural. And you want to avoid, when you're regulating, you want to avoid throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You know, as you know, at PPI, we sort of believe in light touch regulation. We think that regulation is an important part of, an, of a market economy, but you, you really want to make sure you don't go over the, overboard with it. So in this case, I think about regulating large tech companies as the, as the, as the big bear theory. You know, you, if, you're, if you're sleeping in a bed with a big bear and it rolls over, it's going to crush you whether it wants to or not. So what you have to do, you have to shwack the big bear with a stick every once in a while to keep it alert and say, no, don't roll over. Don't roll over. Now, what is true, you look historically about the way the productivity growth spreads. Productivity growth doesn't spread from technology moving from big companies to, to small companies or from highly productive companies to less productive companies. It comes because the highly productive companies expand their share of the market. They are good at doing productivity and they expand. And so that's kind of where we are in this process. The highly productive companies look around and they sort of see other areas of the economy that they think they know how to fix. They, they see a market opportunity. And historically, that's what usually happens. So what we're seeing now from, from my perspective, as long as, as as long as it doesn't go overboard, which some of the bills in Congress did. Some of the bills in Congress made no sense whatsoever. You, know, you want to sort of have a kind of a push and pull, which is that these companies are highly productive, great for workers, great for consumers, great for suppliers. And so you want to see them expand and you want to see them take cognizance of some of the side effects of what they're doing. Thanks for listening to part one of my two-part interview with Michael Mandel. Next time, we'll discuss U.S. productivity growth, industrial policy, and more. <laughs>